0: Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com.
2: That day, it was just hours of hand-to-hand combat, hours of dealing with things that were way beyond any a any law enforcement officer has ever trained it for.
1: Look at all this direct evidence they have from direct witnesses. It's compelling. I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of
0: saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. What you're proposing is nothing less than the United States Justice Department meddling in the outcome of a presidential election. Quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it.
1: There are two different audiences for the committee's work. And maybe audience number one is sitting at the Justice Department.
3: Hi and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law, the courts, the rule of law, and the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the Justice Beat for Slate, and we're about a third of the way through the month of June. That's typically the Supreme Court reporter's Super Bowl month, but we're experiencing just tremendous amounts of hurry up and wait. The court still has a massive backlog in decisions almost 30 cases that we're waiting on, many of which will be controversial and transformational and earth-shattering. And yet this week, it managed to squeeze out just a handful of decisions. It added a decision day on Wednesday in order to announce one single opinion. It's enough to make a Supreme Court reporter want to spend the whole month. In prayer at the 50-yard line, NPR's Nina Totenberg this week also reported on a court in complete internal disarray with mistrust and anger and recriminations and ill will and inability to meet deadlines happening inside the building. Also on Wednesday, a man was arrested with a firearm trying to harm Justice Brett Kavanaugh and his family. None of this is normal. None of this is okay. Later on in the show, Slate Plus members are going to get to listen in to Mark Joseph Stern break down some of the news out of the Supreme Court, including a stunning decision this week, allowing border agents almost limitless protection from lawsuits for their unconstitutionally bad behavior. That conversation with Mark can only be accessed by Slate Plus members. If you'd like to join us and have access to bonus segments from lots of your favorite Slate shows, always ad-free and never to hit a paywall for any of Slate's articles, go to slate.com/amicusplus and sign up. That's slate.com slash amicusplus, and thank you so much to our Slate Plus members for supporting the work that we do here on the show and in the magazine. But the big legal news this week comes not from the Supreme Court, but... From Congress, where the first January 6th hearing opened on Thursday evening in primetime, hearings are going to follow through the summer, and the committee will file a final report in September. Every major news network, with the exception of Fox News, carried these live hearings, as I said, in primetime. Fox shows skipped uh, having commercials, uh, presumably so their viewers would not amble over to peek at the action on other channels. The two-hour session on Thursday night was very tightly scripted. It was very tightly choreographed, led by committee leaders Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney, and the message that they conveyed was
0: pretty simple. Those who invaded our Capitol and battled law enforcement for hours were motivated by what President Trump had told them, that the election was stolen and that he was the rightful president. President Trump summoned the mob... Assembled the mob and lit the flame of this attack. Joining me to parse the legal
3: as opposed to some of the political issues surrounding these hearings is one of my very favorite January 6 obsessives, NYU professor Brian Goodman. Goodman is the Anne and Joel Aaron Ehrenkranz professor of law. At New York University School of Law. He served as special counsel to the general counsel of the Defense Department from 2015 to 2016. He's a distinguished fellow at the National Institute of Military Justice and has published articles and co-authored several books making substantial contributions to the law of armed conflict, human rights law, and U.S. national security law. Ryan's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He is also founding co-editor-in-chief of the national security online forum, Just Security. Just Security has produced an online clearinghouse for covering the January 6th Select Committee And in partnership with Protect Democracy, they have built a primer on how to understand the January 6 hearings. To say that the collection of materials they have amassed is encyclopedic is to deserve the idea of encyclopedias. Ryan live-tweeted Thursday's hearings, and sometimes he lets me come in and guest-teach his law students. So, Ryan, welcome to the podcast. It is really, really a pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. It's just uh, really an honor to be here with you.
3: And and I think I want to start—I have so many questions, but I want to start by just humbly saying I think— You have probably forgotten more details about the work of the select committee than I have ever known. (laughs) And I wonder if you feel as though the distillate of the thousands of interviews and videos and witness statements that the committee has sifted through... Is the correct story that was told last night, which is essentially, I think this is the the, the narrative, President Trump knew he'd lost the election. He persisted in claiming it had been stolen. He summoned a mob to D.C. and wanted them to help set aside the election results physically. And then he failed to quell the violence when he could. Is that a fair characterization of the case that was presented at least on Thursday night?
1: Yes, I think so with one friendly amendment. And it is, just as you described it, it's like hard for me. I'm watching these hearings with two minds. Like one, all the details that I've accumulated over these months and then also thinking about the spectrum of the audience that has hardly been watching or paying attention or is tuning in anew and the like. The friendly amendment is I think there is an additional scheme underway that the committee is also highlighting and it sometimes gets conflated with their messaging, and that is other devices that the president and his closest associates were using through quote-unquote legal channels, but that is like utilizing and weaponizing the Department of Justice, pressuring the Georgia officials, pushing Pence on trying to not certify the election. And I think there's a whole lot of legal liability that they have in that space that is absent summoning the mob, inciting the mob, not stopping the mob.
3: So in a sense, what you're saying is one of the things that needed to be surfaced and that was surfaced last night wasn't simply the events of January 6th, but it was different ways of weaponizing forces inside the White House, forces inside law enforcement, forces inside the Justice Department. And I know we're going to talk about money and other forces, but that all of that needs to be part of the story in order for the public to understand that this was not a spontaneous thing.
1: That's right. And um, Liz Cheney referred to it as, I think, a seven-prong scheme. And that's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot of balls in the air for people to keep their eyes on. But that's exactly right, that there are these separate ways in which Trump is, like you said, marshalling anti-democratic forces in different parts of the government and trying to utilize it at every level that each of these strategies could have worked.
3: So I want to lay out one legal proposition, because I think this is where it gets confusing. And I know on the shows where we talked about both impeachments, this comes up. And that is just what powers this select committee has as a legal matter. And I think folks sometimes mistakenly think it has prosecutorial powers. It does not. It has no enforcement powers. This is, in a sense, a committee that is purely in existence to do fact-finding and, I guess, to issue warnings. And it works adjacent to, but wholly separate from, Merrick Garland's Justice Department and state prosecutorial interventions like we're seeing in Georgia. So this is as a legal proposition, not in fact, a really legal body, right? It's doing fact finding. It is not meeting out justice. Is that fair?
1: I think it's fair. Like It's not a mechanism directly for accountability. It might feed into these other mechanisms for accountability, but that's very indirect. And the only other piece that I would add is, in some sense, the committee's like, one of its major mandates is legislation. So at the end of the fact-finding, they're supposed to propose recommendations for how to secure democracy against these kinds of threats. And then the second is issue a report. And then that is the kind of the fact-finding report that many of us can use. The Justice Department can use it and the American public can use it (laughs) to see what they think is right or wrong in the court of public opinion.
3: So this leads to what was the burning legal question Thursday night that everybody walked away and looked at you and said, tweet to me, Ryan Goodman, whether there is now sufficient evidence for criminal liability. Did we learn anything last night that makes it easier, if the Justice Department sees fit to do so, to go after John Eastman, Donald Trump, Mark Meadows, Jeffrey Clark? I mean, did anything tip into, oh, now we really have a case? And I know certainly legal Twitter was aflame saying, this is it, it's over, now we've got enough. In your view, did something change in terms of this very narrow question of criminal liability?
1: So I think it did change. You know, almost my bottom line, I would say, from the hearing is it places enormous pressure on the Justice Department to open a full-blown criminal investigation if they have not done so already. We have. We can talk about this later, but we have indications they've opened a criminal investigation on some subset of these issues. And in a sense, I think that this is also just a curtain-raiser. That's a like, preview. They're just giving us tastes of what's going to come in the next five hearings over the course of the month. So it's just a sprinkling. But I do think what was... Like that other kind of bottom line, astonishing thing about the hearing is, look at all this direct evidence they have from direct witnesses. It's compelling. So we might have known about this before. So if there are listeners who are thinking like, why do we even need these processes, these hearings? We know this, we know what he did. Yes, but to prove it in a court of law, you also will need credible witnesses. Are they willing to speak? How specific are they? Who were they? What was their level of knowledge? Oh my goodness, (laughs) the committee is sitting on a treasure trove of very senior and mid-level, which is also very important, Trump officials and others around him who have direct evidence that I do think ratchets up the exposure to criminal liability for many of these people. In some ways, foremost, I would say, Mark Meadows, and second, Donald Trump. There's just even more direct evidence against Mark Meadows in all of this, especially because he keeps... A written track record of a lot of
0: his communication.
3: More with Ryan Goodman after these messages.
0: Hey folks, I'm Preet Bharara,
1: former U.S. attorney in Manhattan. On my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, I break down legal topics shaping today's news, and I'm joined by thought leaders to explore topics at the intersection of power, policy, and justice. In our increasingly complex world, clarity can feel elusive. My goal is to empower listeners with knowledge and insight during these transformative times. So I hope you'll join me every Monday and Thursday on Stay Tuned. Search for and follow Stay Tuned on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay informed. Stay empowered. Stay tuned.
3: So, Ryan, before we get to Thursday's hearing directly, can you just walk us through the sorting mechanism you have for your sort of gold team, blue team, purple team, red team, and green team in terms of helping us Think really logically and categorically about the different things that the select committee is going to look at.
1: So the notable piece of the color-coded parts of the investigation is that we draw this from what apparently are the actual color-coding of the teams inside the committee itself. So in a sense, I can't even take credit conceptually for how we've divided it up this is how they divided up their investigation and they color-coded their teams. The first one is the gold team, and gold, of course, is for (laughs) Donald J. Trump and the central effort that he used to pressure federal, state, and local officials to overturn the election. So this includes weaponizing the Justice Department, threatening, and at one point even replacing, it seemed like temporarily, the acting attorney general with his co-coup conspirator, Jeffrey Clark, and pressuring the Georgia officials. And I'll just refer to it as the sleeper issue, which is the alternative slate of electors. I think that ends up maybe being one of the biggest issues that'll come out of the Justice Department. So we can talk about that at some point, but I think that's the sleeper. So everybody's focused on like the insurrection itself and and the like, but this this part of the investigation, both at the select committee and at the Justice Department I think has the strongest likelihood at this point of sweeping in a bunch of these characters, let's say. Uh, Blue Team is on the top of my list. I'm not sure it's going to be on the top of the list in terms of what the hearings are going to cover. I would say, comma, unfortunately, in my opinion. Blue Team is the historic intelligence and law enforcement failure leading up to January 6th. So why were they either unaware or not communicating the warnings that they were aware of. And I know that some listeners, just because I get feedback through my Twitter feed, (laughs) might object and think this is not an intelligence failure. It was highly deliberate. Well, I would still call that an intelligence failure. It's In fact, my greatest concern that comes out of January 6th, one of them is, how much is our law enforcement and intelligence agencies susceptible to political pressure and white supremacist bias? in what they do. And I'm sad to say I'm not sure we're going to get that in the hearings. I think we might get that in the final report from the committee. Purple Team is the kind of domestic militant extremists. So that's the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, both of which have now been subject to seditious conspiracy charges by the Department of Justice. The big question is will the committee or the Department of Justice be able to connect the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers to somebody like Roger Stone, and then through Roger Stone to Donald Trump. That's the kind of big burning question. But a non-burning question, and it's more about a matter of proof, is the degree to which Donald J. Trump either, as a matter of morality, (laughs) inspired these groups to come to the Capitol with a pre-planned attack on the building, And there's lots of evidence, but I think there are different ways you can document that and present that through data as well, in terms of how his tweet on December 19th, it'll be wild, mobilized these people and the alt-right chat rooms and things like that. And then there's also the other issue here, which is a conspiracy in the open. So we have a federal court opinion saying that the evidence does provide a prima facie case of a conspiracy between Donald Trump and these militia groups out in the open. There it is on the Ellipse. First he invites them, they come, and then the Ellipse, he knows that they're there as well. They've announced that they're going to be there. He says, first, your country has been taken from you. Your rightful president has been overthrown, who is me. Now go fight at the Capitol. You know, that's the context that I think we all have to understand. And Judge Maida has a great opinion about this, that that's a conspiracy. We usually think of conspiracies behind closed doors, but that's the purple team, and I think that will come out in the hearings. Red team, the rally planners, the Stop the Steal movement, this is the Ali Alexander characters, and I think a lot of people turn away from this because it looks so bizarre and it's part of QAnon and the like, but I think it's really important that we understand how they mobilized people and it's important that we try to understand whether or not there was foreknowledge on the part of the Trump team that their people would be going inside that Capitol to, quote-unquote, occupy the Capitol. And one note I would just say on that is absent violence. If they had foreknowledge and planning and were involved in the idea that these people would go in and occupy the Capitol it's game over. There's a federal criminal statute that's, the, I would say, probably the modal category of uh, federal offense that people are being charged with for just that. And I would speculate that is exactly what happened, but we don't have the evidence for it. I think that they thought to themselves, in their worldview, their cosmology, let's say, (laughs) oh, it's like the quote-unquote Kavanaugh mob, but it's going to be our people. We're going to go in there and be face-to-face with these members of Congress and tell them what we think and stop them from what they're doing. Okay, federal crime (laughs) in this instance, not in in the prior. Uh, Green team is the last one, green for the money. So following the money, Attorney General Garland said, quote-unquote, we follow the physical evidence, we follow the digital evidence, we follow the money, end quote, for this investigation. But one piece of this that's quite remarkable, it sounds like it's come out of the investigation, and there was a hint of this uh, from Liz Cheney on Thursday, the ways in which they grifted and raised money based on fraud, lying to their people about the stolen election and where the money would go <laughs> in the hundreds of millions, not tens of millions, hundreds of millions. It seems like in some ways the committee has come up on that evidence. I don't think they thought they were going to necessarily see that beforehand. That's significant criminal exposure that I think that they will surface one way or another, either in the hearings, because Liz Cheney hinted at it, or in the final report.
3: I almost feel, Ryan, like I could say goodbye to you and we could <laughs> hang up because already, like what you've done is just lay out a map of something that is so much more capacious and sprawling than what a lot of people who were watching on Thursday night really can process. And it makes me a little bit sad for the reasons you described that some of the law enforcement failures may not bubble to the surface over the course of the June hearings. Because I agree with you, and you know, my bias is that I watched this happen in Charlottesville and I watched it happen again in Ottawa this past winter, where law enforcement failures, I think, are... Such a crucial part of the story that I guess are politicized quickly and are misunderstood quickly. But I do think that it's really important for those of us who are watching this for the first time, or maybe the second time, if we watched prior hearings, to understand that there's an immense amount of investigation going on into uh, systems and operations and operatives that we may not get to meet in these hearings, but that really each of them signals a failure, a massive democratic failure in whatever of your buckets there are. I guess my other just framing question for you is in watching on Thursday night, it seemed to me that the the facts that materially changed the kind of criming story that people really grabbed hold of was former Attorney General Bill Barr, just Straight up saying the word bullshit, I think twice, um, about the stolen election claims.
1: I had three discussions with the president that I can recall. One was on November 23rd, one was on December 1st, and one was on December 14th. And I've been through sort of the give and take of those discussions. And in that context, I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be a part of it.
3: And because it was fun to watch in a sort of King Lear sense, Ivanka Trump's testimony that she was certainly persuaded by Barr's conclusion... I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, So I accepted what he was saying. And then I think there was this other thing that the press really seized upon, which is that Mike Pence was essentially just ditched there. He was issuing orders for, you know, military presence at the Capitol. That I guess we're not
0: being followed. Mark Meadows was fussing about the narrative. Here is General Milley's description of his conversation with President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, on January sixth.
2: He said, um, "We have we have to kill the narrative that the vice president is making all the decisions. Uh, we need to establish the narrative that." Um, you know, that the president is still in charge and that things are steady or stable or what's I thing. I immediately interpret that as politics, politics, politics. Uh, red flag for me personally, no action, but I remember it distinctly.
3: A lot of this was known. As you said, a lot of it matters because we're seeing it come out of the mouths of the people in question. But did the press essentially, in grabbing those pieces of Thursday's hearing, were they grabbing the right things in terms of that which materially changed the legal story?
1: Not exactly. It's a little bit of a a misfit from what they were focused on. And I myself was also focused on that compelling audio from General Milley, who is not a former official. He's our current chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as he was during the time. Just in terms of like, oh my god. (laughs) That's what was happening inside for our country. The vice president, who's not able to issue orders, was issuing orders to the military. And they were taking it as such to secure the capital. So yeah, in terms of the criming, I did focus on a few items that are direct witnesses providing very specific evidence that adds to the equation. So I'll I'll give um, a few examples. One, Mark Meadows and Donald Trump being made fully aware they had lost the election, including from Attorney General Barr. And I think Attorney General Barr emerges as like prosecution witness number one. What a threat he is to the defense team. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But then a bunch of other of Trump's closest associates, people who are still loyal to him, saying he was made fully aware that he had lost, there was no turning back, there was no chance of the numbers coming out in his favor. That's a huge element for one way of running the prosecution. Barb McQuaid has written this fantastic, very deep dive model prosecution memo. She's a former U.S. attorney from Michigan it's based on that idea. If you can prove that he was made fully aware by all of these people that he had lost the election, that is the missing element that you would need, and then you've got it for corruptly um, obstructing the congressional proceedings. Second one, we have an admission from Meadows. Meadows is not just made fully aware, but he says in response, so there's no there there. That's the direct quote. Okay, great. So we've got that on Meadows. That's why I think Meadows, is. A, there's a lot of other exposure. Meadows apparently also told Mitch McConnell at the time that Trump will come around, he knows he's lost, which means Meadows knows he lost. And then Meadows is like the point person for all of this. Lots of criminal exposure. You could imagine if the Justice Department truly followed this as a robust investigation, they would nail Meadows and flip him if they wanted the president. So it's, it really does add to the equation. Last one
0: and aware of the rioters' chance to hang Mike Pence, the president responded with this sentiment, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it.
1: That goes beyond what was reported by the New York Times and others, and Maggie Haberman, who's done fantastic reporting in this space, says on her Twitter feed, this goes beyond what I had in my reporting, because in her reporting, we weren't sure what the tone was. Was it sarcasm? Was it joking? That is very significant because it shows that Trump is, even if you didn't thought he was not trying to incite it at the time, he's instrumentalizing it. He's using the crowd, the riot, to put all this pressure on Pence, and he wants the violence. Or he certainly is a derelict in his duties to try to stop it and because he shares their goal. So whole lots of ways that I think this is just, again, a sprinkling of what probably is to come, but I think that did add to the crime.
3: Ryan, can I tell you what I'm worried about and you soothe and mollify me now?
1: Mm-hmm. I am an <clears throat> eternal optimist. So.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and I am not. <laughs> I am Good a match. recovering <laughs> optimist. I am a broken optimist. Yeah. But I, I was very struck, and I think I kept slacking this Thursday night to my colleagues at the magazine, by the Donald Trump befuddled man-baby piece of this, by which I mean one of the defenses all along has been, you know, he just doesn't know what's going on. He can't form the requisite criminal intent because he is basically just delusional all the time. And we've seen this trotted out for years now. But I'm really struck, Ryan, by the extent to which what was shaping up as the narrative, and we saw this a little bit, by the way, in the Peter Baker, Susan Glasser excerpt on Jared Kushner in the New York Times this week, was this kind of zeitgeist of all the grownups in the room or the grownup adjacent or the aspiring grownups in the room were ghosting. They were just walking away. And that's really Bill Barr, right? He's your A1 defense witness or prosecution witness. And if all the grownups are walking away, leaving the man baby, surrounded by the Mike Pillow guy and Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, there's a sense in which even the fact that folks were telling him we're telling Mark Meadows, there's no there there, almost goes away. And I just am very struck in watching. I keep trying to think, Ryan, about this taxonomy of cowardice. The people who are like, no, I stuck it out until, you know, it was clear his mind couldn't be changed. And then I just left. That in a weird way, they bolster the claim that the man baby in the room was surrounded by nut jobs. And so he's not culpable for anything. Am I... Just way over reading the extent to which a little more grown ups around him makes him at least a plausible former of legal ideas as opposed to somebody who was just getting jollied along by a bunch of people who were as out of touch as he was.
1: Yeah, it's a great question in terms of a difficult nut to crack. Uh, sorry for that. It's, it's, like, I, I chose my words carefully, like he was made aware that he had lost, but is he aware he lost like his mindset is so divorced from reality today donald j trump you could say no he thinks he won he still thinks he won it was stolen from him and therefore he locks some of the mansrea like if you won and it was stolen from you then you do tell the georgia state official find the votes because they're there for me so so it's, it's tough in that way and then he's surrounded Increasingly over time, with the QAnon crowd, um, Sidney Powell, Mike Flynn, and others. That said, I do think he has throughout the entire period Mark Meadows as his point person, and his direct agent and Giuliani. And I don't think Giuliani is. I I do actually put people in different categories. I think some of these people are like true QAnon type believers. I don't think Giuliani's that. I think he's instrumental. He knows how to utilize that, but that's not what he's doing. And Mark Meadows similarly. So. Those are two people. They are his main agents, his personal lawyer and his chief of staff. They have extraordinary criminal liability. Giuliani times 10 on the uh, fake alternative slate of electors. He is the puppet master for that across seven states. So they are the agents of the President Trump. Now, what did he know and how much was he involved in those communications with them? Because they could flip. And then... There are some other people that stay through it, like the White House counsel and the senior actings (laughs) at the Department of Justice, who are adults in the room telling him time and again, this is false, this is illegal, and if you do X, we will resign. And the only reason Trump backs down from doing X is because of the threat of their en masse resignations. I think that builds the case against him pretty significantly, and he bears responsibility legally and otherwise because of it.
3: Wow. I feel better. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan Goodman. I think it's all going to work out okay now. I, I want to also, before we turn to, I really do want to talk about the sort of secret slates of electors and all of what you're describing as the stuff that's really essential that folks miss. But one question before we get there, and that is the great big gaping Mike Pence-shaped hole in this investigation. And let's just play the audio of Liz Cheney describing what Mike Pence is doing. As you said, he's essentially... essentially... Essentially acting as president, giving orders as though he is the president, and yet the president is the president.
0: Not only did President Trump refuse to tell the mob to leave the Capitol, he placed no call to any element of the United States government to instruct that the Capitol be defended. He did not call his Secretary of Defense on January 6th, he did not talk to his Attorney General, he did not talk to the Department of Homeland Security. President Trump gave no order to deploy the National Guard that day, and he made no effort to work with the Department of Justice to coordinate and and deploy law enforcement assets. But Vice President Pence did each of those things. I guess my question for you is, how
3: complicated is it for the select committee to be working around Mike Pence, who is at the center of this story and yet has nothing to do with what the select committee is actually able to show us and i know why i know he has presidential aspirations of his own and he's i mean he wants to be not alienating trump supporters and simultaneously to have clean hands on the day of january 6 but i it does present a problem for the committee that pence is the hero of the story and utterly absent
1: yeah, I think that's right. I think it it has to be the case that the committee would be on much greater solid ground if Mike Pence were coming forward as a witness or if he had in fact testified behind closed doors and then they could place some of the video of that testimony. And he's absent. And, and I also agree with your political diagnosis of what his machinations are. He's running for president 2024 and he doesn't want to alienate the Trump part of the party. And there's maybe one wild card I would suggest, maybe, which is depending on how the hearings go, maybe he changes his mind, but very low probability. But the counterbalance is that we will have testimony, it sounds like, from two at least of his closest aides, so Greg Jacobs, his chief counsel, and Mark Short, his chief of staff, and that's gonna be very damaging. And we already saw a clip from Mark Short and the fact that the committee has confidence in trying to bring these people forward, that sounds like they know what they're going to get. Oh, and I should also mention, there was the other one I was thinking of as well. His national security advisor, General Kellogg, seems to have given very strong evidence based on some of the documents that have come out of the committee. And I assume that they also have a video or audio of his transcribed interview. And then in addition to that, we do also have like a lot of documentation with respect to what was happening with Mike Pence and the efforts to pressure him, and I suppose maybe there's some side to it, like it would create a spectacle. Were he there, it would turn it into this other dimension in the political sphere that would be distracting from the case because it's not personal. And I also war- very much worry about him. If Pence testified, I'd be sitting up, you know, thinking, is he really going to be fully candid? Is he going to speak about how Trump, you know, was doing his best? Cause He's playing a political game, is a huge part of this. So he's not there, but I do think that we'll have uh, strong testimony from others.
3: Let's take a brief break to hear from one of our wonderful sponsors on the show. So now I want to give you tons of space to talk about what you described, I think, very aptly as this sort of sleeper issue that is shot through everywhere, but is really hard to wrestle to the ground, and that is... The election subversion. That is John Eastman. That is, I'm going to just say, partly Ginny Thomas. That is this independent state legislature doctrine. And I, I want you to talk about it because even though we talk about it a lot on the show, it's the kind of thing that is so freaking hard. To get your head around, because it's all happening, kind of, as you said, you know, states are, are, are putting things and we've got, you know, fake electors who are signing documents, there's an immense amount of pressure. And part of the reason I want you to talk about it is to my mind, and again, this is the world that I live in, this is an ongoing threat to the 2024 election, that if we don't help folks understand that all of the stuff that was happening in secret phone calls and, you know, meetings and the stuff that is really hard to bring to life in a televised hearing is the stuff that is going to happen with the force of law in 2024, unless we can get our heads around it. Talk about these sleeper issues and why it is in fact, I think for those of us who think about the rule of law, the most chilling part, much more chilling in some sense than the mob itself.
1: I completely agree with everything you said, and especially the framing of this as an ongoing and future threat through to the 2024 election, primarily, because it shows, as you also described it, it's a vast conspiracy across this one was like at least in seven states. The Politicos in all of those states on the Republican side, the very people who ended up being the electors, that the people who would provide the votes for Trump if he did win to the Electoral College, and they were all involved and implicated in what looks like a very likely criminal scheme, just as one example, and they were going to defy the voters in their states and, in some sense, the implicit understanding of all of this is the way in which they were doing this by just disenfranchising large sections of their state, primarily heavily populated by black Americans in urban areas. That was it. Like on that basis, they say the election that was held is invalid and they would override the will of the people in their states because they're trying to discount certain votes and break their oaths to do it. That's the future threat as well. And as you also laid out, that occurred in 2020 in a kind of bizarro, ad hoc way, organizing, et cetera, behind the scenes, Republican legislatures in some of these states are now laying the groundwork to legalize these ways of trying to snap back the vote from the public and create these alternative slate of electors despite what Americans, who they choose to be their president. So it's just so chilling. It's another reason that I do think it's good to surface this part of the seven-pronged effort to overturn the election. I just wanted to highlight it, I guess the two things I would say for folks to think about in terms of why it is a sleeper specific to the alternate slate of electors. So this is the one in which in seven different states, even though Trump lost, the Trump campaign with Giuliani as the puppet master got these people to create these fake documents that said they are the duly authorized electors and send them to the National Archives, (laughs) so criming, to say that the vote should go for Trump in their state. Two things I would just spotlight. One, we basically know the Justice Department is criminally investigating the scheme. That's a big deal. That means they have the predicate to open those investigations. And CNN reported a direct quote from the subpoenas that had been sent to the Georgia fake electors It asks them to cooperate and tell them about all communications with any agents of Donald J. Trump. Not Donald J. Trump campaign, Donald J. Trump. So there's like starting to draw a direct line to Trump and Giuliani's fingerprints all over this. So that's one, the Justice Department, that's serious stuff. So when we talk about is Garland investigating, I think that's just a piece of the puzzle. There's six other pieces he needs to be investigating, but that's a big deal. And then the second is just to flag something for people that even close observers have missed. Mary McCord who's a professor at Georgetown and a former very senior official at the Justice Department, has filed from her center at Georgetown a civil complaint in Wisconsin against the fake electors there. And the civil complaint includes as its predicate three criminal offenses, three federal criminal offenses. That's important. I mean, she's so well regarded. The fact that she thinks that those federal crimes attached to the scheme it's another part of a, a big deal as a sign of where these things might be going. And uh, just security, we're going to be producing pieces around that piece, in part because it really hasn't been surfaced. It's such a unusual set of circumstances, basically unprecedented and hard to grapple with. Like, where, So where does that meet with the federal law?
3: Thank you. That's... Incredibly clear. And now I want to just turn to the gross stuff for one minute, which is the footage we saw of Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and assault and just absolutely, to my mind, harrowing testimony about this was not a bunch of tourists. This was a, a, a mob that was, I think, hellbent on doing violence, that saw law enforcement as a, a problem. And I think my initial question, and this is just a bit of a feelings question, is how was it for you watching that new footage and watching uh, witness testimony? As we've said throughout this conversation, this is the soup that you've been swimming in for a year and a half. Was it as viscerally painful and jarring for you? as it was for those of us who were watching this, who just got snapped back to that day, but seeing new footage and body cam footage in ways that were really, I think, I just want to say re-traumatizing?
1: I mean, I'll be very honest, in a way, not because I've been swimming in this for so long. In a way, not because one of the things that we did with just security very early on is sift through all of these grotesque scenes on parlor and the like, and found some very incriminating videos. And there's actually a term of social science for it: psychic numbing. So apparently the investigators who went into Hiroshima after the events, were able to do what they were able to do in the doctors because of psychic numbing, that at a certain point, you get numb uh, to it in a way. And I think that's another form of trauma, obviously. But that said, for me personally, the U.S. uh, Capitol Police Officer Caroline Edwards' testimony kind of broke through in a different way. I mean, it makes me, to be honest, uh, as well, tear up to just think about it. And that's uh, just to see the person and what she went through, and she takes you right back to what she's experiencing through her words and visually seeing her pain, um, that's just, uh, it's so uh, frightening. And we were taken straight into it basically, as she's describing to us, a war zone. Carnage from an assault of these, like, violent white supremacists, many of whom had planned it.
2: I was slipping in people's blood. Um, you know, I, I was catching people as they fell. I, you know, I was... It was carnage. It was chaos. I, I can't. E- I can't even describe what I saw. I, never in my wildest dreams did I think that, as a police officer, as a law enforcement officer, I would find myself in the middle of a battle. You know, I, I'm, I'm trained to detain. You know, a couple of subjects and and handle you know handle a crowd, but I'm I'm not combat trained. And that day, it was just hours of hand-to-hand combat, hours of dealing with things that were way beyond any any a law enforcement officer has ever trained it for.
1: So yeah, that shook me in a way that I think there are moments in all hearings in some sense where witnesses will say things that will stick with us and stick in the history books. And I thought that was one of those moments.
3: And what did you make of, I almost don't want to cite this as the Hannity defense, but I guess the more robust the claims are that the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys planned this, that they this was not a spontaneous uprising, that they had weeks of coordinated efforts. We saw conversations between them. The idea that this just fell into place day of, I think, has been soundly debunked. And yet the answer seems to be, at least again, the Hannity defense is that means that Donald Trump is off the hook because these guys were coordinating with each other and he did nothing. Is there any plausibility to the idea that the more we learn about what was happening on the ground and the coordination of the other groups, the more it looks like Donald Trump had absolutely nothing to do with this?
1: Yeah, I don't think so in a few different ways. So first, they were sent their signals by Donald Trump, and they received them, So that's also the call and response that is part of the conspiracy, in Judge Maida's opinion. And second, their plan includes mobilizing the, quote-unquote, the normies. So those are all these other vast people who showed up for a rally, a political rally. They didn't show up to commit federal crimes, but then they were turned into this mob. They only get those people into that frenzy because of Donald J. Trump. He's an essential... Ingredient without him, it doesn't happen. They couldn't take the capital in their small numbers; that wouldn't have succeeded. It only succeeds because of him. I just think he's so culpable in so many ways. The other one is, even if all of that were true—that it was all pre-planned and had nothing to do with it—then what did he do after it happened? He's, you know, dead on arrival in terms of I think criminal and other moral responsibility. And then the last one is, I would say the following as well: Boy oh boy, did Donald Trump and Mark Meadows know? going in, this was volatile. It was a powder keg. They had announced they were coming. They said they were coming When after Trump said, be here, be wild. They publicly announced it. And Meadows is told, for example, that there's a threat of violence the next day. That comes from testimony by somebody might be a star witness, Cassidy Hutchinson. His aide has told the committee that. Meadows, we have him in, an, I think it's an email or a text message on January 5th saying that the National Guard will be there. Trump, when he says in his defense, oh, I said that we should have 10,000 or 100,000 troops ready, all of that is evidence, they knew they were sitting on a powder keg. They knew this could be seriously violent, and then he gives that speech at the Ellipse? I think that's foreknowledge and culpability. I think he's in deep trouble because of it.
3: And Ryan, before I say goodbye, I guess I want to ask about the question we've been dancing around a little throughout this discussion, which is uh, Merrick Garland and the Justice Department, because I think uh, we can all agree and we've done conversations on this show about running out of runway here, the, you know, clock is ticking. We uh, have midterms coming up in November. I guess if Donald Trump announces his candidacy, uh, you know, the calculus changes in terms of what Merrick Garland would be willing to do. So I guess I just want to ask, to the extent that you can offer a just sort of scholarly, neutral opinion, you've got, I'm sure, a lot of people shouting at you on Twitter that, Attorney General Garland is just being too halting, too polite, too tentative, too cautious. He will never meet this moment. You've already described uh, very serious moves that the Justice Department has made to bring about accountability. I guess my question for you is do you have some sense that the work of the select committee and the sort of cover? that was given by Thursday's opening session, in some ways gooses a Merrick Garland who may or may not be on the fence about how far to go here?
1: Uh, Yes, Uh, that's a great question. And something I think about a lot, I do think he seems very reluctant to move. I think he's got a skewed sense of what it means to politicize the Justice Department because following the rule of law is what he should do absent the political pressure coming from the other side. That's not politicizing it. I think he is responsive. He's not a, to ways in which people force the question. He's not proactive. So the Justice Department has done a number of very good things that have facilitated this investigation, have facilitated this uh, civil cases. When asked to do so, when pushed to do so, then they respond well. Hey, do we have? Are you going to uh, claim executive privilege? No, we're not. You can have all of our former senior officials. Hey, um, are you going to claim that Mo Brooks is acting in his? Capacity as a member of Congress or politically, they say to the court politically, and it also implicates Trump that way it's just responsive, so i even though I point to the alternate state of electors i 'm surprised by that, and I do think that the committee's work seriously ratchets up the pressure on him to do something i 'm not even sure the committee at the end of the day has to do what they do. Have. They have the ability to like issue a referral, but as we said at the outset, the referral is not anything. It's not a real power. It's just basically any of us in a certain sense could issue a referral to the Justice Department. You know, please take this up. We've discovered some evidence of crime. The committee's work alone will be that, de facto. And I think that's what I thought was coming out of the committee on Thursday and will be in these other hearings. They have a body of evidence. It is so clear. We also have these other federal district court cases that have also started percolating up How can you not open a full criminal investigation? How can you not? And I think it also, it's agenda setting. So in the sense of it just shapes the mandate that he must have and the cover, as you also put it, that he can have to say this is of such a serious nature and we're all aware of it and that the response to it is this kind of qanon and conspiracy and disinformation coming from the other side. Come on, let's be adults in the room of the country, Attorney General Garland you have to move ahead. There's no legitimate response on the other side of the equation. And all I'm saying here at some level is to at least open a full-blown criminal investigation. I'm not even saying what others would say, which is like an indict, (laughs) but I could see that claim too coming out in a certain sense. Yeah. So I think it's very important. And there's no way, I think even the people who think some of these former senior justice department officials, oh, don't worry, he's got it. Trust him. Look, he told us, he said he's going after at any level of authority, which is, I'm not trusting that. And that's just, Those are just words. At a certain point in time, even if they were right, like they they thought that he should be trusted at some level to follow through, this is very significant. And it's not just him, it's the department. So it's like one of the things that he cares about, that Attorney General Bill Barr even cared about, is do they lose the department? Or do they lose some of the people inside the department when they move forward in a certain way? That constrained Bill Barr in some respects because people in the department adhere to the rule of law. There are a lot of holdovers. There are some Trumpies, obviously. In that department. So I think that this is a another way in which even if you think Garland wants to do the right thing, this bolsters him. This gives him a serious cover. like it it does put it to him in the sense of how could you not?
3: and so I think that's probably the answer to what was going to be my last question, which is when people are making comparisons to Watergate and how that changed public opinion or to the Clinton impeachment or Benghazi or what have you, or even the two impeachment trials of Donald Trump, I think your answer is those are not perfectly apt comparisons because the job here is not simply to change the hearts and minds of, you know, people who watch Fox News and didn't change the channel. The days of that sort of mid-century persuadability are long gone. This is about doing something that is, in a way, a very kind of transactional conversation between the Justice Department and the select committee, and we're all getting to witness it, but we're not supposed to be changing hearts and minds here. That's what you're saying.
1: Or I would just say that there are two different audiences for the committee's Where. And maybe audience number one is sitting at the Justice Department.
3: Ryan Goodman is the Anne and Joel Krantz Professor of Law at NYU School of Law. He served as special counsel to the General Counsel of the Department of Defense from 2015 to 2016. He is the founding co-editor-in-chief of the National Security Online Forum, Just Security. And let me commend to you again the amazing clearinghouse that they have put together covering the select committee. Ryan, thank you more than I can say for really, really clarifying something that felt murky but essential and I think is actually, as of this moment, crystal clear and essential. And I really thank you for your time doing that.
1: It's great to have any conversation with you. Thank you so much.
3: And that is a wrap for this particular episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so much for your letters and your notes and your questions. You can always keep in touch at com, or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio, and Ben Richmond is Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts here at Slate. We will be back with another episode of Amicus next Saturday. Until then, do take care of yourselves, and thanks for listening.